Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. This week, I was in the great state of Washington for, well, a number of reasons that we'll discuss in this podcast, and I actually just got back to Crested Butte a couple hours ago. But this past Monday night, I recorded this conversation that you are about to hear with K2 ski designer Jed Yeiser and K2 athlete McKenna Peterson. We have talked on Gear 30 a lot about our review process at Blister and how we go about, you know, well, the actual process of testing skis and getting feedback from several of our reviewers. And well, that's what you hear me and Luke Coppa and Sasha Nastis and Kara Williard and Kristen Sinat and a number of our other Blister reviewers do on this show frequently. But today you're going to get to hear the process of how a ski designer, Jed Yeiser, works with a professional skier, McKenna Peterson. And then actually you're going to get to hear well, have me enter the mix into this, and you're going to get to hear about the day we had skiing together on Monday, where we were really kind of triangulating a bit, and we were bouncing off things we were feeling on skis and some skis that Jed was prototyping, and then we actually talked maybe more than we ever have about snow conditions. And then, of course, we also end up talking about flip-flops and books and biathlons, and a number of other things. So just another wide-ranging Gear 30. Oh, and I almost forgot, we, in this conversation, officially announced that we are, in fact, going to be doing a Blister Alpine Ski Binding shootout. And this is something that, for those of you who have already watched our panel session that we did at the Blister Summit on ski design and real-world considerations. This is something that kind of came up in that panel session, and I said in the panel session, like, we might go ahead and do this. Well, now we are 100% going to go ahead and do this. So you're going to get to hear more about what we're talking about. And if you haven't yet caught that panel session on ski binding design and real-world considerations, you should definitely check it out either on our website or on our YouTube channel because I promise, I promise you are going to learn one or two things in that conversation. So that's what we have for you today. It's a good one. This episode of Gear 30 is presented by our blister-recommended shop, Powderhound, in Girdwood, Alaska. And in case you didn't know, this spring is shaping up to be a great one in Alaska, and Powderhound Ski and Bike is still stocked up with not only this year's goods, but they've already got their hands on some of next year's ski models as well. So whether it's a new POW ski that could actually probably come in very handy right now if you are in the Girdwood area, or if you're looking for a ski to tear up those firm mornings of spring... Powderhound can get you lined up with the gear and the services you'll need. Spring sales are currently in full effect at Powderhound, so my advice is contact the shop, or better yet, get in there while you can still get the goods. Now, not only is ski season still in full swing, but bikes and summer gear are arriving daily at Powderhound. So if you put off getting that new bike last year... 
Well, don't wait through another summer without something shiny under your bum. Powderhound has several new models from Transition and Rocky Mountain, so head down to Alaska's only local ski-in and ski-out shop that is at the base of Alyeska and say hi to their crew and ask them what they've been skiing on this season. And I am confident that they are going to steer you in the right direction. Finally, this episode of Gear 30 is also presented by Mountain Flow Echo Wax. Mountain Flow is disrupting the ski, snowboard, and bike industry by producing high-performing products that are also biodegradable and more sustainable than the conventional products in the space. Now, also, as we are getting into warmer spring temperatures... Veteran backcountry skiers know that that often means that the snow is going to get stickier, that glopping is going to become more of a problem on your skins. And so if you haven't yet checked out Mountain Flow's products, head over to their website, mountainflow.com, to check out the range of products and figure out which might work best for you, given where you live and what you're currently doing. Finally, I should also say, we just did some write-ups on a couple of Mountain Flow products. That was in our Stuff We Like roundup that just went up on the site a couple of days ago. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes, and you can read up on some of the products that we've been using recently and really throughout the season, and you'll see what we found so far. So yeah, head over to mountainflow.com, and if you're going to be doing later season inbound skiing or you're going to be doing any ski touring this spring, go find the products that are going to work best for you. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with K2's Jed Yeiser and McKenna Peterson. Here we go. All right. Well, I am here with Jed Yeiser and McKenna Peterson, and we are currently in Jed Yeiser's hotel room. <laughs> true story. Yeah. It's a true story. It's also been almost exactly one month since the three of us were hanging out in Crested Butte um, at the summit. And so this is kind of nice, like a reunion slash rendezvous coming sooner than reunions slash rendezvous often come so even better we just had a really fun day in the mountains together we had an awesome day yeah that was really fun um jeb would you like to tell the people where we are since this will mean you have to pronounce the name of the town i I think i got it right even though i don't like the pronunciation yeah um we are in mizana washington uh so it's at the end of the metow valley um it is one of my favorite places in washington it's just a, a tiny little town i think is technically the right word but there's not really a town it's just a a lot of sort of cabins and huts in the woods in in an unbelievably gorgeous place with incredible access to the outdoors and it's um you know right on the the eastern side of uh the north cascades national park uh the north cascades highway uh route 20 is closed this time of year so we had to drive way around uh to get here but uh, yeah, it's sort of like north central Washington. I think we're 20 miles as the crow flies from Canada ish, maybe 30. But um, yeah, you've spent some time around here before, McKenna. Yes, this is my second trip here. The first time I came here, I was pretty blown away by these mountains. I believe this is the most impressive mountain range in the lower 48. We don't want to put that in a podcast for people. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> don't tell anyone. All right. It's all right. It's hard to get here. It's not going to. 
I don't yeah. think this place Downtown. will ever blow up too big in the winter, but very excited to be back. Yeah. Yeah. It was a cool day. Our, we had decent visibility at times, low visibility at other times. <laughs> yeah. And so you were a little, you were like, ah, oh, I wish you could have seen like the full, the full the, range. The full range. I mean, yeah, from a lot of the places we were today, you, you could look in for, you know, 270, almost 360 degrees and just see nothing but like huge peak after huge peak and, and just unbelievable mountains and unbelievable ski terrain. Um, you know, ski terrain, it's very difficult to get to, but that doesn't change the fact that it's unbelievable ski terrain yeah. in here. You can mind surf it forever. Yeah. Mind surf it forever. Not her mind surf. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's the next podcast. <laughs> mind surf. Mind, mind surf. What was yours? Mind surfing with McKenna. Uh, hot, 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 hot tubs and hot ideas. Hot tubs and hot ideas. Oh, mind surfing with McKenna. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, that's a have, good one. We are going to have to give you, this yeah. has become a thing I do on podcasts is talk about the podcast that we're going to start. So I talked, I was like, Cody, we should start a cooking podcast and Cody. he was not um, into it after talking a big game about like what a great cookie cook, is and yeah. then he backed off quickly but <laughs> mind surfing with mckenna is very good but i like hot tubs and hot ideas too yeah <laughs> um, the cousin of bikes and big ideas it is i mean yeah it's certainly borrowing from bikes and big <laughs> ideas um, um how do we want to do this i do want to talk about k2's r&d center because i got to check that out was that yesterday? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Time, time, time flown. Yeah. Um, I was impressed. I honestly, well, the last time I was out this way, I think you and I are disagreeing a little bit. Our memories. I, I think our memories are equally bad in a complimentary way. Okay. <laughs> that was a good way of putting it. Wow. Um, because when I was out, actually, I, I must have messed this up. The trip I remember was, in fact, the very first podcast I ever recorded, which was with you. Yeah. And we did that at K2's headquarters. Correct. And at the time, right, you guys had an area where you could, you had a couple molds down and you could sort of make some things. And that's kind of still what I had in my head. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward seven years, and um, it's not the same. I think some of that is we probably didn't spend as much time on that first trip. Like most of the equipment that is in, in our development center was at, in our previous location. We've certainly added a, a number of machines and quite a bit of functionality, but um, you know, we have, I believe five different presses to mold skis and four for snowboards. And those were all still there. Uh, the, you know, we have a, a large CNC machine that we use to cut tooling so we can make on the fly adjustments to tooling or cut, you know, new tools at the drop of a hat. And that was at our old center. Um, the, the things that we've changed uh, recently, some of which I can talk about and some of which I can't, is, um, you know, there are some new materials that we are in the process of evaluating and will be rolling out shortly. And so we've brought equipment into our development center to really vet those materials and and basically make sure that they work for us not only on a materials level but also on a systems level um, and can really begin dialing in the processing and the manufacturing needs for these new materials and new processes before we hand that off to the factory. 
Um, we've completely redone our sanding room. Um, so as opposed to a bunch of standalone units, we now have a number of machines that are all uh, part of the same filtration system. We've really expanded our 3D printing capability. I mean, I can keep on going with, with changes, but I think, you know, fundamentally the, the capabilities we have now are very similar to what was there before. We've just refined them. Um, and you know, there are additions, but it's, it's more refinements than like whole scale changes. We haven't, um, like invested in five more presses because the, the number of presses we had, uh, was sufficient for our prototyping needs, which is what we do at the development center. And when I was there yesterday, which is weird because that feels like at least five days ago. So mm -hmm. I don't really know what's <laughs> happening right now, but I asked Jed if you McKenna had been at Arc, which is what it is called. Jed doesn't love the name Arc, but uh, it's. It, I I think part of that is like I. It was. I think the name Arc came around two or three years ago, and like I'd been at K two for nine years at that point, and always it was always the development center, and so I think it's it's just a change that has been tough for me to to get used to. Which ingrained. Habit. I'm a creature habit. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But I was asking if you had spent much time there and he's like, oh yeah, McKenna has been here quite a bit. And one of the things we're going to be talking about today is prototyping and testing. We were having just organically some pretty interesting conversations among the three of us. Um, and so I don't know when I was just there today. So I got to be a part of, you know, the on snow testing and questions and concerns that we were sort of raising. But when you are at the development center, what are the conversations you guys are having there when you are developing a new ski? The most exciting thing for me going to the development center is looking at the materials with Jed and all of the different types of material. Yeah. You know, obviously not laid in skis and touching them and feeling how they move and how heavy they are and what their texture is. And like trying to wrap your head around putting different materials together to make a final product of ski. And it's kind of, it's, yeah. it's a cool process because there are so many options of material. Yeah. And, you know, you can touch it and you can look at it, but you don't really know what that will feel like in contact with the snow and under your feet. So it's cool to pick Jed's brain on that and how, you know, certain things work together to make the feel that you're looking for. And I think like for us having, you know, McKenna, who's a, you know, one of our marquee athletes, but also is, is deeply, deeply involved with ski development is, is enormously helpful for us for a number of reasons. A, like McKenna and I talk often on the phone about product performance and things we want to do, but a face-to-face -face meeting is always just more beneficial. Mm -hmm. Um, and often when McKenna will come, we can really show her sort of where we're at in the prototyping phase, like before she gets skis on snow, where we've spent months talking about an idea or a ski or a change we're going to make. And sort of this would be the first time that we can actually show her what we've done and like how the things that, that she's mentioned or we've mentioned are actually manifested in the real world. I also think it's really helpful. I mean, there are a number of times at ski tests where, you know, an athlete or a tester will say like, well, why can't we just do it this way? Right. And it's, it, it's usually a challenge to explain some of the limitations, whether that be from a manufacturing process or materials or just overall design, right. Um, when we're 
in Sun Valley testing. Whereas when McKenna comes to the development center, it's like, here, here are our limitations, and, and now you can physically touch these materials, you can touch this tooling. And I think it's a lot easier to understand like what our limitations are and also where our options are, right? Like there, as engineers, sometimes we do get pretty focused on a very small subset of problems or a very small bit of a problem. And to bring somebody in who's intimately familiar with our test process and the evaluation process, but maybe not as entrenched in the details can sort of help us um, take a broader view of things. And, and it's, it's really helpful. It's also a really cool learning experience. You know, I understand skis and skiing, what they feel like, how they perform, what I'm looking for. I feel I can describe that fairly well. But when it comes to the engineering process, I'm ignorant and clueless. And every time I go to the development center, we can sit down and we can look at their computer programs and we can look at actual layups of skis. And like, I try and piece that together with feels on snow. So that I get a lot out of that. It's so interesting. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, anytime we're testing and it doesn't matter who we're testing with, we're not asking for mechanical feedback. We're asking for sensory feedback, right? And once we get that sensory feedback and parse that sensory feedback, we can have a broader discussion about how we might be able to address any shortcomings through mechanics. But like it, if McKenna is like, it's too stiff, to me, that's not as meaningful as saying like, it was really tough to initiate and felt harsh, right? Where, where that is much more actionable actionable feedback because a lot of times like stiffness I think is a great one and Jonathan you and I have had this discussion a lot it's really deceptive where sometimes a ski can feel very stiff when it is not and feel very soft when it is not due to a number of other you know characteristics and ultimately when we're designing skis like McKenna and I aren't saying here are the mechanical characteristics we want in a ski design that and if we get these mechanical characteristics we're done it's this is how the ski needs to feel on snow and there are a lot of different ways to get to that feel or a number of different ways to get there. So, sorry, I'm talking a lot here. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to move on from the development center. But can I say the thing McKenna was talking about? She likes playing with the different, you know, materials and pieces. Am I allowed to say what my favorite thing was from yesterday? Uh, sure, you can say it. And then I'll make a lot of loud noises if it's thing we don't <laughs> want going, going out to a broad it was, audience. It was the the three gram top sheet material. Okay. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. Unfortunately in its current, I want to see that top material end up in a ski. It, because it's so light and so thin, Wild. I mean, it's like five hundredths of a millimeter thick. Um, anything that thin is going to have some durability problems and it's, it's, a material that, that one of our engineers looked at for some, some weight savings and they're significant. And after some long-term testing, uh, with guides in Europe in particular, they came back and said that it doesn't make the cut. Well, I mean, they basically were like, these skis are free to us, right? This is fine. If someone's paying, you know, a thousand dollars or $800 for a ski, this, this doesn't meet the requirements that that customer is going to have. And I think that's, that's why we will often send like new materials or new ideas out for long-term testing, because there are things that like, no matter how carefully we design a lab test for, it doesn't fully replicate the real world. And, and we need to understand how something new 
works in the real world. And so there are some, some things I'm looking at and need to try where it may be like splicing that top material with a more standard top material. Um, I'd like to see that material in our skis, but at this point, and like this test feedback from the guides was like a week ago huh. that, that we finally sat down and, and, and got it or a week and a half when I was in Switzerland. Um, but I mean, that's to get back to the development center quickly. That's one of the coolest things for us is we can find a, a new material or have an idea and the barriers for us to prototype that and evaluate that and get that out to, you know, guides, athletes, testers. Um, it's just a matter of like, do we have enough confidence that like the promise we see here is worth taking time to do? And that's, that's the only barrier. If the answer is yes, we go. So let's talk about being on snow, which we were. Uh, just a few hours ago. And again, I've alluded to this now, but you, Jed, mm -hmm. were on a pair of prototypes today. Yeah. I was not. Yeah. I was skiing the new K2 Dispatch 120, which I had skied a day and a half at the Blister Summit. That was my first time on it. McKenna, you were on the... Mindbender 115C. Okay. And which you have been skiing a lot. I ski regularly, have for a few years. Okay. So you knew your ski. Yes. I, my thing, I mean, I'm still fairly new to the Dispatch 120, but frankly, with, I skied it inbounds at Crested Butte, which for me is kind of a test of like, and I really liked how it skied there. So I'm like, if it held up well uh, for inbound skiing in CB, well, it just, we're going to now talk about some of our different frames of reference, right? But yeah. you today were, you know, we would, you know, ski a run and it was like, what do you think? And you're like, eh. And anyway, let's, let's, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah. I mean, so like the thing that I was really struggling with today is that things were happening as I was skiing that were a little bit different than what I would have wanted to feel on this ski. And the snow was, I mean, it was good snow, but it was challenging snow and it was really tough. I mean, good. And it was heavy, dense snow that was pretty variable. Um, and in a lot of places, there was like a slightly breakable crust a few inches below the surface. And it was, it was my first time on, on this prototype. And generally when we test, we have, you know, a group of skis, some of which are known quantities that we've all spent time on before. And so it's very easy for us to say like, okay, this ski that I'm very familiar with is exhibiting some of this same behavior as this new prototype. It's probably the snow or it's probably the tune or it's, it's something that's shared across all of the skis. Whereas, you know, today being on a completely new ski in different snow conditions, it was really hard for me to assess whether this was something that the ski was not doing properly, or if this was something that like you guys were struggling with on struggling. It's not like I was struggling with the ski. It just some slight sensations that I, I wasn't quite happy with. Yeah. And I think like you guys, when I talked to you about it, you were like, yes, I'm feeling this as well. And that can be a really important part of testing, but it's also why we don't test one day in one condition and why anytime we're doing a test uh, or like a more official test, we have a larger group of skis for us to compare to. And we do one run on each ski yeah. so that you're not adjusting your skiing to a ski. Um, because you can't, if, if you go in blind, you're going to make decisions blind. 
and I don't, yeah. The conditions today were, it was fine skiing. It was fun skiing. I want to talk more about the conditions actually here. I think this, we, we've never really done, had a podcast conversation where we are like, let's actually talk about what the snow was. Cause so anyway. Yeah, Let's so it was, it was difficult. It was challenging skiing. I that, didn't think it was. Well, I, I don't know that I would say that it was challenging, but there were definitely there were definitely times where I really needed to think about how I was weighting the ski, especially when there was that crust where it's like, I can't like stand on this ski because then I'm going to punch through. And so I had to be way more delicate and like manage my skiing in a way that I don't normally when I'm testing. Which I felt the same way. And I think ultimately the snowboard was the right tool for today. (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. Yes. But we were on skis. Yeah. Okay. Except let, again, we're just defining, let's see if we could come to agreement about what the conditions were like (laughs) that we skied on. I would argue first and foremost, we were actually having a kind of an argument about who of us is the worst, worst low visibility skier. <laughs> skier. And I, I still think that's probably me. I think if we had good visibility, that would have actually gone a pretty long way today. I like the, the breakable crust was minimal. No, Minimal. I mean, it was certainly worse on, I think, like our second and third runs than, than later on. And there were some some runs, particularly the one where we had the worst visibility that I thought had the highest snow quality. Uh-huh. Agreed. Um, Wait, was that when we... The, 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 like through the little um, wine glass. Trip. That was so cool. That was so that cool. That was cool. Yeah. You're like, well, what did you say? You're like, this is spooky. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. kind of eerie. It, yeah. Yeah. It was... So for, I mean, I guess it'd be helpful if we had pictures, but for listeners, like... We, we came up to the top of this sort of ridge um, with two really clean rock walls on either yeah. side. And, and then there's like a bank it. of fog, like down at the bottom of this chute. And over like a minute, you could just see this fog come up. And by the time we dropped in, it was the whole line was in pretty dense fog. Um, it was so cool from the top, though, because, yeah, these I actually have a picture of you two standing there, if you remember. Yeah, yeah. So, unfortunately, I don't think from the camera angle you can see the, like, rollover. Because it dropped, just I mean, dropped it away. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, it was funny that we were all like, yeah, that was our favorite. It was just so, like, aesthetically cool and interesting, I think. And yeah. the snow was good, I think, because those rock walls and then where yeah. we were standing was also kind of a steep up. It was pretty protected from the wind. Yeah. And that's why the snow in there was, was a bit was softer so, and more yeah. forgiving and... It was also, I think, a more northerly aspect, so there had been less solar effect. But, I mean, I would agree, Jonathan. I think the skiing was good. I would say they were very challenging testing conditions because, like, as I was skiing down, I'm normally thinking, like, how's this ski doing and what's going on? And my calculus was more, is this the ski or is this the snow? Because the snow in some some places was, like, not the same two turns in a row. Well, so that's where I want to go. Okay. Yeah. That's what I think was the most noticeable element of the snow today is that, I mean, we were skiing untracked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There were, whether there was a change in aspect or a change in elevation, the consistency and density of the snow was definitely changing. And that was, at least for my own skiing today, I was a bit on guard. Because if it was like, am I about to hit a much more dense, like I, at one point I think I yelled out like that was butter, yeah. but like in my head, it goes from like butter to like 
cream cheese or cheesecake yep. than to glue. Yeah. And like glue, I've really kind of only skied actually. It was a specific trip in New Zealand where I was on a massive, heavy, wildly rockered ski and I could not turn the thing. It was glue. Yeah. And that's pretty rare that I think I've been in that. But today it was like, you know, you, we had the opportunity to lay over like some big pow carves, but I was like, am I about to hit a much more, not, not rock, not ice, but just a big change in density of the snow where I'd kind of get be going over the handlebars. Yeah. I don't know what you, we didn't really talk about that. If, if you guys were skiing guarded. Yes. Well, I mean, to some extent. Yeah, I'd say more so than normal. It's not like I was super cautious. And there were certainly times where I I did want to open it up. And I did open it up so that it wasn't like I was like, I can't ski the way that I want to ski. But it was just I had to manage the way I was skiing snow conditions and the way the snow conditions might change rapidly in in a way that makes, for me at least, uh, testing difficult. Because I'm thinking about the snow and what I need to do to the snow more than like, what's the ski doing here? Um, and then often when we test, which maybe not for that exact prototype, you do kind of change how you're skiing to see how the ski is reacting to, you know, charging in the front of your boot, to standing more upright, to really laying it over, to slarving and sliding out your turns, just to see how the ski performs with all those different types and styles of skiing. To, the conditions today did not provide the opportunity for that. But like to your point, when we do that, you're you're making those decisions. Right. You're not having those changes being dictated by conditions. Right. Exactly. Here's a question for you, McKenna. Jed and I both talked about today that again, I have talked about these like changing densities of the snow. And I said there were times when I felt like I couldn't drive the shovels of those dispatch one twenties. It's either I couldn't or I wasn't willing to going back to like, cause you actually said you did tip dive once today. And I think that I was doing the, like, I'm going to be a bit back on this ski to not get the opportunity to start cartwheeling around. So were you doing that or were you actually being braver and you were driving your shovels and you felt like you could, but maybe that did end up in a tip dive or two? Both. You know, that's how I like to ski. I like to drive. I like to be forward. But the conditions today didn't allow for me to do that all of the time. So I was trying to pick and choose when I can and then when I need to be a little more upright and keep my tips up. And obviously, I messed up once today when I dove my tips and went over the handlebars. Were you in a carve or were you, you were, and you were trying, you were driving the shovels and yeah. Okay. It was just, I mean, but like, I think that was probably the crust. You just broke through. Mm, Yeah. Or I just, you know, the, I think maybe the slope flattened a little bit and I didn't read that correctly and just went in. I think my one fall (laughs) was in a very low vis area when I was skiing to our guide, Josh. And I didn't realize that basically I was in a half pipe. I was just skiing at him and just like skied into the wall. <laughs> a very soft wall, but I was like, that turns out that didn't work. Yeah. Um, so another thing I think it's worth talking about, may, and what we're doing is maybe explaining for people just how does this whole process of testing a prototype or the exchange. And I mean, this is exactly what we do, you know, 
back in Crested Butte when I'm out with a couple of our reviewers, like we're having the same conversations of like, is this snow weird? And if everybody else is like, nope, then it's like, oh, okay, maybe there is something going on with the ski. And sometimes our reviewers will be like, yeah, it's weird. It feels a little grabby or sticky or whatever. And that stuff's super helpful. But um, yeah, I guess we were, when, when Jed, when we were asking Jed, like, how's it going with that ski? And you're like, I don't know. I don't love this. When we were saying like, yeah, we were feeling some of that same stuff. Again, that calibration, I guess, is the thing there that, and especially I think for people showing up at demos, right, to hop on a ski. And, you know, we talked about this a decent amount at the Blister Summit, but, you know, be careful before you go do a run or two on a ski and you're like, this ski sucks. And it's like, okay, well, do you suck today? Are you tired? Or what is the snow actually like, you know, and are you sure that you're kind of taking into account those things before making an assessment of the ski? Yeah. And get, get back to a ski that you like, if you do, if, if there's a question in your mind about like, is this the snow? Is it the tune? Is it visibility? Is it any number of things? Get on a ski that you're familiar with because that's, that's a ski that you can then start to make judgment call because you're now removing the ski variable yeah and you're on a ski you know well and you, you can test the conditions out yeah, i think it's important to note there's a positive side to this too there are times when you get on a ski either a prototype or a demo it's your first time skiing it and you just feel like you are the best skier on the mountain you are having the most fun and it just clicks that does exist that does happen so and you and i had that same experience on the same, same ski, ski. This year, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's special. Yeah. Um, but it isn't always, you know, trying to find the one that is the least bad. You know, right. you can find that ski that's like, Oof, this is it. This is what I want. Yeah. And I like, we sort of do two different types of tests. There's like a long-term test where we'll send testers skis and they always have maybe not our full benchmark set, but they have reference skis to compare prototypes against. Um, but especially early in the development cycle, we do much more structured testing um, where it's like one run on each ski and you're filling out a test card after each run. And we really try to stay away from any on-hill feedback or discussions um, because that can color somebody's rankings and feelings about it, you know, as they're starting to suss out details. Um, and then we'll have, you know, after each day of testing, discussions can go from anywhere from an hour to five hours where we debrief and everybody compares notes and we we input all of the data from these test sheets um and like i know you and i have talked about like the one run test for us like doing one run on a ski switching to a different ski really lets us compare like what is this ski doing well and what is this ski doing well and where do we want to go in you know, in this broader context. Um, and so there is some value in a, in a one run format, as long as that's not the only thing you're doing. And as long as you're not saying, I'm going to take one run on a ski for one day yeah. and, and come to any sort of meaningful conclusions. Yeah. And then like, yeah, just sort of be done with it. Yeah. And then the other thing, I mean, we still don't really ever actually do that. Like we'll, we'll still, because if we're, at that point, what we would do is be out with maybe one, 
two to four pairs of skis. And if we're really trying to home in, then we would do the one run switch back back. And so it's kind of more of a keep ping pong balling for a bit, or maybe two runs on a ski down one groomer, then down the left side of, you know, Jokerville, and then go do the same thing, those same two lines on the other ski to try to figure out like that way, rather than like the one run for how often, like if you're doing the one run thing, are you doing it with five different skis? Five is the most I like to do in a test group, like more than five. And I think like ranking skis gets really tough. And, and honestly, I, I think we only try and do five in very limited circumstances. Three to four is, yeah, is really where we like to be. And sometimes it's like we say, okay, you know, we're going to do two runs on each ski or we're going to do like one run on a ski in the morning. And then like, it's going to be more structured free skiing in the afternoon. So it's not like we've done our one run on this ski. You can't ski it again. It's just, it's a test format and a structure that has worked well for us historically and you can riff on it, but it's, it's good to sort of like recenter to that, that procedure. And it's just important to note, this is not one day. Yeah. So, you know, we take, say, say it is five pairs of skis. We do that one day. And then that night, Jed will, you know, they all have the same top sheet. He changes all the numbers and we do the same thing the next day, but we don't know which one's which. And then we do it again. And then we do it again. And like, I and like I think a lot of the other development engineers struggle with being the people that relabel it because we know what the skis are. And so we'll often do like a double blind where I will relabel it and I I say, okay, like I know A1 is this construction. So just to be clear, you're talking about taking three to five skis, three to five prototypes of the same ski with slightly different shapes or flex patterns. You're not taking your ski, whatever you're working on, and four other competitors. It's it's all, sometimes it's just prototypes. Sometimes it's just benchmarks. Sometimes it's one benchmark and three, pro, like there's usually always at least one prototype in the group. Yeah. Um, the relabeling is most helpful, certainly when it's the prototype yeah. with the same graphic. Yeah. But like, I don't want to know, because I design the skis and I have inherent biases. I don't want to know what, the ski is. And so I will relabel the skis and then I'll have another engineer go and relabel my relabeled skis. And so I then at the end of the test, I take that engineer's decoder ring basically. And then I know what the numbers are. Yeah. It's that's, that's a lot on prototype numbering. Yeah. Prototype numbering here. Test numbering. Yeah. Yeah. Switching gears. Yeah. Rather, rather decisively. It is currently Monday night, the 21st. Tomorrow morning, if Luke Kappa does his job, um, our internet connection's a little sketchy at the moment. And so, but if Luke does his job, we will have our very first panel session from the Blister Summit live tomorrow, Tuesday morning. And we decided to roll out first the the panel session we did called uh, Ski Binding Design and Real World Considerations. And it's a pretty fun conversation. And in that conversation, we were sort of challenged a bit with this idea. And it was Chris McKeeran from Solomon, who was rather adamantly arguing that 
you know, putting a different good alpine binding on a ski will end up having significant effects, notable performance differences and feels to quote McKenna and also kind of Matt Manzer, you know, in terms of what you're feeling on snow. I am still a bit skeptical of this. I think Jed, you are a bit skeptical of this. I mean, I, I, I'm skeptical of the significance. Yeah. I, I think there will be perceivable differences, um, but whether it's to the degree that Chris was suggesting, I, I simply don't know. Like there are bindings that I use and I, yeah. I continue to use and that we use in development. Um, I'm very interested to know more. And like we have talked about doing binding tests as well. It's a little bit outside of the scope of what like McKenna and I developed skis, not bindings, but it is really helpful for us to know, or would be really helpful for us to know how the performance of a, a ski we're developing might change yeah. with a different binding. So in that panel session, I, you can watch and hear me say to Chris, like, all right, well, maybe we'll do that. We, we have run uh, this test on blister when it comes to AT bindings. And we took, I think it was six pairs of actually it was a line tourist ski ski i really liked um mounted it with six different at bindings and that was significant that was not subtle in terms of the differences between these bindings we then did this with a kind of ultra lightweight binding test um we mounted up some solomon mtn 95s and ran that we were talking yesterday and I don't know if I brought it up or you did, but I think I did. And you kind of jumped at like, yeah, let's a hundred percent do this. Absolutely. So we are in fact going to do our Alpine binding test and we're going to use the new K2 Mindbender 99. McKenna has skied it. We both think she probably needs to get, get on a longer length of it because it's, to me, like if anybody knows the previous Mindbender, I thought for many people, the 184 centimeter Mindbender was a lot of ski with a very big swing weight. If you're skiing like weird terrain and big ass moguls, that is not how the new K2 Mindbender 99 feels in a 184. Um, and I think that that ski is going to be versatile enough where like directional skiers can get on it but some of our reviewers have already been on it like lucapa who has a bit of a more playful style likes a lighter ski and so i think that ski is actually going to be nicely conducive to some different styles of skiing um you know and i think that's going to be kind of important for this i think it's a ski that i actually haven't spent that much time on groomers on it yet but I think we, you know, a 99 underfoot ski ought to be able to ski well on groomers. It ought to be, you know, able to ski well in moguls. It ought to be able to handle firmer variable conditions, softer variable conditions. And so I think we're going to, it feels to me like a good choice um, to go try to figure out like how much do we notice these differences of the same ski with a different range of Alpine bindings. Yeah, and I'm I'm really excited to to see those those results, and and maybe I'll fly down to Crested Butte and 
participate. Um, I can't wait to see those results. I yeah. wish I could run that test on my own. Like I'm <laughs> yeah. so curious. Maybe we'll just double down on the number of skis we're sending blisters so we can get do do a men's and women's. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would love to do that. I mean, this is, it's, we're talking about already. I mean, these 11 skis, right? Or 11 yeah, bodies, we, yeah. We've, we've, we've identified 11 by actually, I think we're at 12. So 11 or 12 bindings that we want to put into the mix. And then if we are going to run, you know, we're a hundred percent going to do the 184 centimeter Mindbender 99. We may also do some or all of these in what's the next length down. So, uh, the next length down is a 178. 178. And so that would be cool. Um, we are going to have to make a decision about boot sole length because these won't be tested with demo bindings. Um, so for, you know, the 184s are going to be drilled for a 26.5 boot because we have enough reviewers at Blister that can ski a 26.5. If we do the 178 centimeters, we right now McKenna is arguing for a 22. <laughs> and then we're like, well, we could get McKenna and Sasha on it. And we got to yeah. figure this out a little bit. It's not, it's not like the simplest thing in the world. Um, to not do, at all. But, yeah. And I, and I still maintain having done, having done this with AT bindings and then really light AT bindings, I still don't imagine at least, so I'm on tape. I don't imagine that I'm going to be like, whoa, mind blown. I, I turns out I have a clear preference for this binding or that binding, but that's exactly what I ended up finding out from the other tests. So I'm not so, I'm not sure where my certainty comes from. I don't know. I don't know. That's why I'm so curious about it. I do feel like I have a strong preference, but I, I don't know. Is it a visual thing? Is it a, I don't know. Is it just what you're used to? Is it the way you step into the binding? Is it like, there's so many variables that might go into it that I'm so curious if it is run in a test format. Format. I, I'm, How I'm many really people are going to yeah. feel like there's a big difference? And I, I always have a thing where I feel like, I mean, you two are ex racers and I tend to think slash wonder like are racers more sensitive to binding performance than say the rest of us. Um, I don't know. Are some racers more sensitive to it than others? Possibly. But then why would that be? I think there's, I mean, timing, right? Like racers can be sensitive to things because they have a qualitative way of measuring things. Right. It's not just sensation. And, you know, there are a number of racers, I won't name brands, but like a certain brand's binding is used most often on the world cup, even if a racer race races for a different brand and the brand that used to make that binding just sold a lot of their tooling to a competitor because they replaced the binding. In any case, um, like, I can, can speak to like my experience with bindings when I was racing and I was never like looking at this binding versus another binding, but I did spend a lot of time playing with like toe stack heights in particular. And like, I used to run my toes on my slalom skis way higher than I would on my GS skis, which are higher than they were on my super G and downhill skis. And so like, it was less about the actual binding and more about where my boot was on the binding. I don't know if, if you did the same thing, 
but or did you play around with different like brands bindings? No, not really. I didn't get that techie with it. But then that brought up an interesting point with boots with and the grip walk. Yeah, like how much is that going to play in? Keep going. What's your thought? I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I know that I've changed out the AFDs in my pivots, and for some reason, I prefer to ski my Anthem Pros that do not have a grip walk sole with the flatter AFD that I have replaced on my pivot bindings. I don't know why, but that's what I like. I think it feels better. This is Paul Forward, if he's listening to this. This is his thing, too. He's <laughs> he's really, yeah, he is not the biggest fan of grip walk soles. And- I think for you know those of us that grew up with a standard Alpine sole and are like very accustomed to how that walks and how to get into bindings with it. It's so in like it's muscle memory. And so anything different than that feels odd. Um, that that's a theory it's unproven, but like I, I have spent time talking to people who are fairly new to the sport and the grip walk for them. It is a huge benefit. Yeah. Um, and they, they do say that they, they can feel a, a noticeable difference. So, um, Certainly haven't talked to everybody, but that's the consensus that I've seen. Well, I think our plan for our Alpine binding test, I think basically what we're going to do is, I mean, our ski season is winding down here in the Northern Hemisphere. So our plan is to have um, the skis in place, the bindings in place, you know, ready to go for the start of next season which I think will be great, right? Because, you know, mountains will open and we'll just be skiing on piste and um, it'll be a good place to get things started. And, you know, we'll ski the terrain that's open at the time. And then, you know, with more time and more snowfall, we'll start getting, well, into more terrain around the mountain. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, again, I I guess I'm skeptical um, of the, big, big difference or even big preference from me, but I'm open to it and we'll go see what we find. That's enough talk of prototype testing and Alpine binding stuff. Now we're just going to wrap up by talking about some things I've learned about Jed and McKenna, um, this particular trip. The first thing I have to say, as somebody that has been on record talking about how flip-flops is one of my favorite pieces of gear in the world. I now, you know, bow down. I definitely am not the king of flip-flops because (laughs) Jed, like it's truly all you wear. Uh, Given, yeah, I mean, like if it's slushy or there's a lot of deep snow on the ground, flip-flops get challenging. Um, Sometimes, you know, living in Seattle, if it's really pouring rain, like when they get, wet you're not into wet feet wet feet is well it's just like when they get slippery and like you start slipping on them but like um you know i i frostbit my feet badly uh ski racing and i guess the way that my body has dealt with that is my feet are just hot at all times and so i'm like objectively more comfortable in a flip-flop and like if i'm in shoes with socks on even if they're very breathable ones um i get hot my feet get clammy so um I'm, I wear shoes maybe like 10 times a year. Wow. 
I wear shoes <laughs> 10 times a year. Perfect. I mean, not including like bike shoes, right? Okay. Or ski boots or ski shoes. I don't bike in bike, bike and flip. And like, I bet you give, do every once in a while. Given the option of like a, a, an SPD flip flop, that, that is not something I'm interested in at all. <laughs> I guess. Um, but yeah. <laughs> something I learned about McKenna tonight at dinner. Fish shouldn't be fishy. Oh, quote <laughs> from our commercial fisherman. Fisher yeah, I mean, no, that fishy taste. You know that? No, what? Do you, no, it just fish is not supposed to have that fishy taste and fishy smell. Like when it's super pungent and I'm, it's fishy. That's the only way I can describe it. It should taste like salmon, not like sort of rancid fish. Well, now like we're talking rancid about rancid. Well, so, but it, like, that's it, what it yeah. gets when it gets rancid. That's what it develops. It's like it's is starting that. to go. Yeah. It's like not yet gone. But like, Is it like vinegary? No. no it's, it's just like... It's fishy. No. <laughs> it's, it's like <laughs> fact, go, go, go to a fish market, right? And like that that smell and that sort of taste. And I'm not saying like the fish at a fish market are, is going off, but it's just this like very unique smell or... The fish woman yeah. should be talking okay, so about the, fish. What, what brought up this conversation was the heavy anchovy in the Caesar salad dressing tonight was extremely fishy. And you asked if I was a fan of anchovies. I do like anchovies sometimes, not when they are at the point when they're super fishy, because I don't think fish or seafood in general is supposed to have that fishy smell and fishy flavor. My other favorite part was when I was like, so what should it taste like? And you're like, the ocean. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with her. Um, yeah. What do you mean? Defend. What does the ocean We're taste gonna like? We're going to have very good salmon tomorrow night, hopefully. Well, hopefully and it, and it you will, will not, have very good oh, salmon. Hopefully we're going to be there. Hopefully you guys will um, be there and yeah. it will not be fishy. Okay, but what does the ocean taste like? This was hilarious. <laughs> That's a hard one. I know. You're like clean. Clean. <laughs> clean and fresh and like, salty and oceany. Wow. Fish shouldn't taste fishy. It should taste like the ocean and the ocean tastes clean. And I was like, like salt? And you're like, yeah. Clean salt. <laughs> yeah, I buy that. You're I, need, in, I need to work on my descriptive yeah. words. For, I mean... Yeah, but Alex. I don't know how to say that any more clearly than what you just said. But I fully appreciate. Oh, I know. There's a way to do it. I, I fully appreciate out. how it's not clear, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks, so that's, Jed. A, that's hairy. I appreciate eye the support, Yeah, I don't know. Um, all right. Well, fish should not be fishy. They should taste like the ocean. That's what I've learned tonight at dinner. Um, another thing I've learned, Jed, but also apparently McKenna. You're both into biathlon. Absolutely. Guns and skis. <laughs> yeah. And like we were having lunch and you started dropping all kinds of biathlon knowledge. And I'm like, where is this coming from? I, so, like, I mean, I, I grew up skate skiing a lot in Vermont. I never like raced biathlon or did biathlon, but I had a number of friends that did. And for reasons I don't fully remember, I think it was a little bit sick. And it was, I think, the 2016 Olympics. And I just happened to turn on a biathlon race and got totally, totally drawn in. And ever like you've got the the fast, accurate shooters. You have people that are faster on track. Things change quickly because each lap or each shoot is really never more than like three and a half kilometers. So you've got a lot of change, like lead changes happening. 
Um, it's, it's a really exciting race to watch and sort of since 2016, I've gotten deeply into, <laughs> I'm, I'm deeply. like, um, yeah, like I, I, I watch every world cup as soon as I can. Um, I watched more biathlon at the Olympics than I did any other sport. Um, like Alpine racing was close. Uh, and then one of my really good friends in, in Vermont, uh, Sabre Davison, who's actually been on the bikes and big yeah. ideas podcast. She lives right next to 40th and Allen, which is, has a great biathlon training center. And so when I go home to Vermont, it's like, it's all lit up. And I think Tuesdays and Thursday evenings, you can go and basically like rent a gun and there are sort of coaching staff there to help you. But like, Fun. you can go and like sort of do your own thing or there are like small races and it's a ton of fun. And like, it's, it's like a huge challenge in like so the targets are tiny. You go and rent a gun and then get on your skis and go practice shooting things on skis. Yeah. I mean, generally awesome. I like leave, leave the I gun in the range with paintball guns um, <laughs> and then we just chase each other around and it's just like, <laughs> but I don't think yeah. that's quite how this works. Um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredibly challenging and I think pretty uniquely challenging sport in that like you go from redlining yeah. to needing yeah. to be incredibly still yeah. and composed and, um, like the targets, I think in shooting and, and prone. So when you're laying on the mat, I think the targets like four and a half centimeters in diameter from 50 meters away, which is, I mean, that's, that's enormously precise that you need to be to, to hit that. And the strong shooters on the world cup will hit five out of five. And they'll be between like taking their gun off, getting down on the mat, shooting five shots and back up. That's generally less than 30 seconds. And that, they're going from redlining to doing that. And that's, a, to me, enormously impressive and a lot of fun to watch. Jonathan, have you ever watched biathlon? Mm, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like... Come to a K2 ski test because I make all of our testers watch biathlon. Yeah, I got into it because of Jed. <laughs> because of <laughs> and it's it's seriously captivating. Like, we will sit, sit there and watch biathlon for hours. Yeah. And you learn all the people's names and you get into it. And, you know, your favorite person's in the lead and then they miss their shot. It's really exciting. Yeah. Wow. I think I asked you, like, who's the Michael Jordan of biathlon? And you... Ole Anner Bjørndalen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or on the men's side, um, on the women's side, at least with the athletes that I'm familiar with, and there's a, a whole history of biathlon that I'm not familiar with. Um, Martin Forcad would be another one on the men's side. Uh, Anastasia Kuzmina would be up there, or uh, Kaiser Makarainen. Um and there's a German woman who who stopped racing when I started watching biathlon, but she gets mentioned all the time, and I can't remember her name, and it's bothering me. Yeah. Um, but her, uh, yeah. you can't name a no. Okay. Now, more important question: If we were to start the Blister Biathlon Podcast, <laughs> what what should the name of that podcast be? Bl blister but like alliteration is great like blister biathlons kind of um i like more like guns gu and guns and going you, you want guns um, to be involved yeah. yeah yeah guns needs to be in it i don't know i'll i'll, I'll think about that yeah um does that mean I get to host the, Probably, the Blister yes. Biathlon podcast? <laughs> you know more about Biathlon than anyone I know. So, yeah, you're in the, um, you're in the pole position. At the perfect. Um, it should be like small targets and sharp edges, or we go some, like some 
down that road. Small targets, big engines. Um, but then guns isn't in there, so we need to work on that. Anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll workshop this. Last thing we're going to talk about, your favorite author. Well, I'd say favorite author, but... W- you got really passionate and excited and mad at McKenna and me that we had not well, read. Not having read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is inexcusable. Okay, I, um, I, I'm on it. Douglas Adams it. is the author that um, that Jonathan's talking about, but yes. Douglas Adams. Um, I learned of your interest, passionate interest, because I needed to ask what your Wi-Fi password was, and you came up. We won't share yeah, it. Oh, I was about oh, to say, yeah. this is yeah. going to come up. Let's not give my Wi-Fi yeah. password. No, but I'm like, um, what? And it's a very strange sort of word and all. And it's like, what is that? And then you're like, wait. You, you don't, don't know. know. And then you were yeah. deeply <laughs> offended and scandalized. Well, so it's, I mean, the name of my network, which I, I will give that up, is Subspace Ethernet, which is like that, that factors strongly yeah, no, yeah. into um, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where Douglas Adams talks about subs, Subspace Ethernet. And it's, yeah. And then your password also has it something is. to do. I still know the name of it, but I don't know what it means or, but anyway. Okay. Um, when did you first, and then the other thing that we need to tell our listeners, there's more than one book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a series, well, there's apparently. one book called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Wait. but it's also a trilogy in five parts. Okay, but just and, to say. Wait, how is it a trilogy in five it's parts? Adams, it's that's just, what, yeah, there's it's, five books. But, yeah. it's, but it's a trilogy. No. It, it, <laughs> there's five books. There's five books, yeah. Which makes whatever the. F- it's again like Douglas Adams being Douglas Adams yeah. when he described it as a trilogy. Can you name parts. all five? Oh, I, I, know, it's, I, I couldn't get the fifth, and I so it's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Restaurant at the End of the Universe, uh, mostly harmless. Uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. That's the best one. Yeah. Um, and I, the fifth one, I can't recall. But it's like when when I read all five books, it came in a single volume, a single book. Um, and yeah, it was just sucked in. I mean, it was like a book that my parents had been talking about all of my life and in, in the way that I think teenagers do. If, if your parents are passionate about something, it really can't be good or cool. Yeah. Um, and then just started. That's how with, we feel about you. Yeah, yeah well, that's yeah, perfect. Is, I mean, yeah. Yeah, you, 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 you've got a leg to stand on there, at least. <laughs> um, just was immediately sucked in. Like Douglas Adams has an incredibly well-developed sense of humor that is biting uh in the observations that he makes about humanity um but manages to make these fairly unkind observations in a way that you you laugh about it and like in a way that's very humorous and sort of through humor um really kind of like puts a mirror up to to us as a species um and i think make like encourage us to ask questions of ourselves that are important for us to be thinking about and to be aware of um I mean, it's 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 the plot is completely absurd and like Douglas Adams, the more absurd, the better, but it's like absurdity with reason. If that makes any sense. Who do you think will like it more McKenna or me? I really hope both of you guys really like it. (laughs) 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 I think, I think possibly McKenna would like it more than you because like you've spent so much time reading like pretty dense philosophy texts. 
that like some of the things that to me were really like yeah. new and appealing about Douglas Adams might be a little bit like mundane yeah. um, for you. Maybe. Okay. I, I see where you're coming from. I'm not sure that's true, but I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Are we going to start a book club? Well, I was well, the thinking, blister book club. we have the blister yeah. book club and I was thinking, I mean, if we, we could read this and then come back and do hitchhiker's guide yeah. as a blister, what would your books be? Yeah. I was like, we talked books, we but I'm not sure if we talked books. books on the podcast. Mm -hmm. We did not talk books on the podcast. What are my favorite books? Um, you know, Mary Oliver is my favorite. I mean, she's a poet, but it's just she, the way she writes is beautiful. Mary lives next to my bed. I read Mary all the time. Do you have a specific title or collection since you're reading Hitchhiker's Guide for him to? Oh, my! I, I'll get back to you. I have like six of them sitting huh. there. Nice. Yeah, let me know. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite book I've ever read is Shantram as... Huh. You know, a lot of people say that, and I think it has weight. Never read it, no of it. I've you should read, read it. It's, it's a yeah. wonderful story. Um, yeah, I, it's gone on the list as well. Mm -hmm. Impactful. Um, We're going to have to stay in Mazama where there's no, no internet. internet. Yeah, like we can so actually, we can actually to, read mm -hmm. books. Yeah, get back to mm -hmm. books. All right. Uh, well, well, I'll make a pact. We can add... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for a blister. I, it's a, book it's a worthy edition podcast. So we'd probably run that like this summer or fall. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. It's gonna happen. Okay. Um, well, hey, um, good skiing with you guys. Fun talking about skiing and skis and bindings and flip flops and biathlon and, and books, books. <laughs> uh, with you all. And uh, yeah, thanks. This has been a really really good day mm -hmm. and uh yeah thank uh, you guys yeah thank you and let's see well we should say mckenna the blister audience will be hearing from you you were on a panel session at the blister summit that panel we called athletes and entrepreneurship with julian carr and chris davenport awesome conversation that mm -hmm. was fun and then you jed were on a ski design panel both of those should be coming out within the next two to three weeks. So there will be the blister crowd gets to hear more from you all. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Oh, lucky them. <laughs> now, after yeah. this, they're like, well, well yeah. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll check those out. <laughs> no, it was fun having you guys out and always fun to talk. And uh, yeah, thanks for yet another good conversation. Thank you. Thank you, as always. All right. Well, it is now time for our weekly What We're Celebrating segment on Gear 30. I have in my hand a glass of Whistlepig 12-year-old rye, actually. Neat, because that's what I do with their 12-year-old. It is actually currently Friday morning, 1 a.m. in the morning, March 25th. I just got back from Seattle a few hours ago. So first, what I want to do is raise a glass to really an incredible time out in the Seattle area and in... Mazama, Washington was my first time, first of all, ever skiing in Washington. I definitely want to get back there, but had a fantastic time in the Cascade Mountains with some old friends like Jed Yeiser and McKenna Peterson 
And we met some phenomenal people up there as well, including, I want to give a shout out to Josh, our incredible guide with North Cascade Mountain Guides. It's always the best being in the mountains with good people. And we got to do that this week. Now, the other thing that I guess I'm going to go ahead and raise my glass to in about eight or nine hours, I'm going to be getting on snowblades actually for the first time in my life. We are going to be shooting today our next blister crash course video. And this one, the gang is getting on the snowblades. I've said this before. I've kind of had this monogamous relationship with skis. So when people are like, wait, You've never been on a snowboard. You've never been on snowblades. You never tele skied. It's like, no, I've found my love and it was alpine skiing. I wasn't uh, cheating around on alpine skiing, but I guess I am now. So it should be a fun day. There should be some crashes and we're going to go get those snowblades up into some steep terrain tomorrow. So video will be coming out, I don't know, maybe in a week or two. If you saw our telemark video well, I don't know. We're going to try to top that one. So I guess I'm going to raise a glass to this. Um, here's to doing new things, probably falling a lot, looking pretty dumb. You know, what's not to like? And so cheers to all of that. And with that, that brings us to the end of this edition of Gear 30. Of course, I want to say thanks to Jed and McKenna for the great time in the mountains and for this conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again next week. <laughs>